Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to continue looking at Article 7 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, looking at the negative statements, those teachings that we reject and condemn, because they're against Scripture with regard to the teaching on the Holy Supper of Christ. I'm your pastor. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Tyrell Bramwell. He's the pastor of St. Mark's in Ferndale, California. Pastor Bramwell, welcome to Concord Matters. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to have you and an honor as well. All right, so let's go ahead and dig in. We've been covering this the last couple of weeks here, this article. And the listener, as well as those reading along, of course, will notice that the negative statements on this article are probably more lengthy than any other article in the formula of Concord. The epitome especially is what we're working from here with references to the solid declaration, which is a much more lengthy treatment itself. And I think for good reason, because the Lord's Supper is really important to us as Lutherans. And this is probably one of the most controversial things at the time of the formula of Concord and can still be today. And so it's going to be really important as we dig into these that we understand why these things are things that we reject and condemn. So let's go ahead and get to it. So I'm going to read the first few negative statements here as I think they're all tied together, at least with uh, uh, who we're we're talking against here. So this is picking up with paragraph 21 of Article 7, reading from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, the reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. On the other hand, we unanimously reject and condemn all the following erroneous articles. They are opposed and contrary to the teaching presented above, the simple faith, and the pure confession about the Lord's Supper. Point or negative statement number one. The Papistic Transubstantiation. It is taught in the papacy that during the Holy Supper, the bread and wine lose their substance and natural essence, and that they are annihilated. They say they are changed into Christ's body, and only the outward form remains. Point two. The Papistic Sacrifice of the Mass for the Sins of the Living and the Dead. And point three. The Sacrilege to Lay People. Only one form of the sacrament is given. Contrary to the plain words of Christ's testament, the cup is withheld from them. They are robbed of his blood. All right, so we're going to go ahead and pause there. Go ahead and break these down for us. Obviously, they lay it out here. We're talking about the papacy. That's the Roman Catholic Church, those who follow the Pope and his teachings. And uh, and that seems to be the real focus here, right, Pastor Bramwell? Absolutely. These first three, as you rightly lump them together, and as it's very clear from the language used, are dealing with one side of the errors that the Lutherans at the Reformation find, we ourselves still to this day, find ourselves uh, combating. And then we're going to shift from that into the other side of the 
the Reformation issue and the controversy that's at hand as we start shifting toward the Calvinists and uh, you know Zwingli and the the other sacramentarians there. Uh, here in the beginning, I love this this very opening line. On the other hand, we unanimously. Now here we go right away. Words have meanings, and the Lutherans are making clear that we all Lutherans, all of us who claim to be Lutheran, unanimously reject and condemn the following erroneous articles. This is important because so many of the, uh, in, especially in the German world at this time, so many of these errors were trying to be advanced as if they were Lutheran. So we have here right out the gate, first thing unanimously. We're all on one page. If we call ourselves Lutheran, we reject what you're about to read. I love that. It's just it's just a great way to get started and to show that we're all united there. Next, just before we even get to point one, another thing that is very important for us to note is this mention of simple faith. Today, sometimes it can be a almost viewed as a negative thing to call ourselves simple, but the faith is a simple faith, and what God gives us is understandable by all people. You don't have to have a doctorate degree to be able to understand the ins and outs of Christian theology. It's a simple faith, and we get that right away in this opening, and then that's going to pop back up here and there as we go through these negative statements. Uh, you know, simple here is is speaking directly against what we heard earlier in this article, is speaking against the crafty acrobatics of the sacramentarians, right? We have the, the two different types of sacramentarians, the, the crass or the crude, and the crafty, the, the lofty language, the, the philosophical, the you know, this sort of thing. And so we have, again, another word that we should kind of spend a little bit of time just making sure we know the faith is simple. It isn't uh, crafty. It's not, you don't need to do these, these twists and turns with the words and the language. It's pretty straightforward. So now let's move to number one, point number one, the transubstantiation issue. And, and right there we have, we're clearly talking about the papistic the Roman Catholic view of what's going on. And we have this, this idea of annihilation, as if the bread and the wine cease to exist, and it's, it's now just body and blood of our Lord, as if we're transferring from one element to another, one substance to another, which, there we go, we have transubstantiation, right, transferring. And this is going to have a uh, sort of a sister point that we reject on the other hand, on the on the more Calvinist side of things. When we get to it, we'll talk about that too. But we have two sorts of, of issues we're dealing with here. Both are based on works, and we're going to get that as we move down into point number two. And that's why I love how you lumped these together. Point two, the papistic sacrifice of the Mass for the sins of the living and the dead. It's not the priests who, their indelible character, their work of repeating these words and doing these things, these masses, the sacrificing of the Lord, it's its not on them that is making this happen. What happened in communion, what happened in the Lord's Supper, is the work of Christ. It's His Word that we're focusing on, not that of the priests. Great job walking us through here point by point. And I want you to hit the point three there, the sacrilege of the lay people receiving only one form, because I think that that's a big point. Yeah. Certainly was at the time of the Reformation. We've covered a lot of that when we covered the Augsburg Confession, Apology of the Augsburg Confession. But I like how you've set this up for us and 
and highlighting some key words there for us. So unanimously and simple, excellent job on bringing that out. And as we progress through here, I like how you are also framing for us, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks on this, that really we have this spectrum that is going on here. On the one hand, we have the papacy, the Roman Catholics, and of course we, we soundly refute them in the Augsburg Confession, apology of the Augsburg Confession. And so even on these first three points, while focused on that hand, this has been treated much more at length in Luther's own writings and, of course, mm -hmm. in the Augsburg mm -hmm. Confession and Apology. I did just want to kind of bring that in to highlight as we get into point three here. And then, of course, we're going to spend most of the rest of the time, and we've already had the clear confession of what we believe, teach, and confess. That's the affirmative right. statements. And the most of the rest of the time, we're going to focus on kind of the, the other things that are coming in at the particular time. And, and as I've said on this show, I think more often in our American church body, we have more influence coming from the reform side, the Zwingli Calvinists, than probably the Roman Catholic side at this point. Both, obviously, you know, what we need is a clear confession. And we've highlighted that many times. So go ahead then, and just before we leave kind of the, the Roman Catholic side of this, yeah. go ahead and hit uh, that uh, negative statement three there, why is this a sacrilege? What's going yeah. on with, with uh, rejecting it to the lay people? As we move into three, point two, we have one simple sentence, right? One very basic thing we reject. But it's a huge issue as we look at point number two before we get to three, because it deals with uh, justification, right? I mean, it threatens justification. And as I was getting ready for this, I was uh, kind of reviewing what the Augsburg Confession says on some of these issues. And I'm just going to pull, pull this out for uh, your listeners' sake here. The Augsburg Confession, as we're dealing with the Lord's Supper, says this amazing statement here. Scripture teaches that we are justified before God through faith in Christ when we believe that our sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. Now, if the Mass takes away the sins of the living and the dead simply by performing it, justification comes by doing Masses and not of faith. Scripture does not allow this. Just a profound thought in this little one sentence point two that we reject. We're protecting, and we're we're rightly protecting based on Scripture, the doctrine of justification upon which everything else, you know, stands. Okay, so now let's move into three. I think we did justice there. If we look at point number three, only one form of for the lay people. It's clear that any custom introduced that robs Christ's people of one of the two kinds is going against scripture. As we look at you know, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, we have it very clearly. You know, Paul gives an example. He says, whoever eats and drinks, right? They're both there. But even more so out of the gospels, Matthew 26, 27, what does he say? He tells us, drink of it, all of you. It's quite obvious that we're getting away from what our Lord teaches as we are introducing a new custom, a new tradition. And by, I say we, meaning you know, the Roman Catholic Church as we were coming into this point in history. So yeah, we're rightly rejecting that and moving back to what Christ and his uh, apostles clearly teach us in Scripture. So with that, let's turn to our other combat, right? Well, the other side of things. hang on, because you brought us some excellent points here. Uh, <laughs> one, great job bringing in the Augsburg Confession. I'm glad you did that before we moved on. That that was an excellent point to make. So thank you for uh, bringing that back sure. for us. Because And this is a, a point that we've made even in the last couple episodes of covering this article as well, is that as far as it pertains to that, kind of both sides of the spectrum really do come down to works. And, and I like how you centered yep. us on the article of justification. That's the chief article 
article upon which the church stands and falls. I feel like I say this every week on the show, along with a hundred other phrases. And it's true um, for that very reason that you highlight. It's a good job there. And it focuses on the work of priests. And we're going to see that connection as we move in. And then just to pick up, because I think this does transition into the other side of the spectrum, the reform side of the spectrum that we're going to be taking a look at for the bulk of the rest of this here, is that this innovation that the Roman Catholic Church brought in and giving it in only one kind robs Christ's people of the comfort that they have in the doctrine of justification as Christ gives to us this holy meal and is going to be highlighted here then and also how we talk about the body and the blood and why they're there and what what they do for us. So let's go Great ahead and, point. And, yeah. and, and move in now. I, I just wanted to make that kind of, it's a nice transition there for us into the next. And so I'm going to go ahead and pick up reading with uh, paragraph 25, and I'm going to read the next three negative statements again together. The teaching that the words of Christ's testament must not be understood or believed simply as they read, but that his words are difficult expressions whose meaning must be sought first in other passages of scripture. So we reject that. And then we also reject this is negative statement number five. In the Holy Supper, Christ's body is not received orally with the bread, but with the mouth only bread and wine are received. Christ's body, however, is only received spiritually through faith. Point six, we reject this also. The bread and wine in the Holy Supper are nothing more than symbols or tokens by which Christians recognize one another. Now, I, I want to highlight this for us. When I had one of my regular guests back when we could all like gather together in one room and so forth, and I had a panel of guests, uh, layman uh, Peter Slayton uh, was on that. And, and he often said in the early days when we got to uh, these negative statements, it's really important that we emphasize, especially when we have an audio show, these are things that we reject and condemn. And sometimes the negative statements say we reject and condemn, but sometimes it just gives a teaching that is out there. And if you kind of take it out of context, or if you just tune in audio and, and you hear that and you're like, well, we don't agree with that. You're right. We don't agree with that. <laughs> that this is a negative statement. This is something that we do not agree with. Now, Pastor Brown, will go ahead and break down for us why are these statements, these three that I just read together, uh, why do we reject and condemn these statements? Yeah, I love how you clarified that as we uh, get talking. I remember uh, the theys, as you read you know, in the Book of Concord, that they teach this and they believe that, and it's often referring to us as Lutherans, right? That our churches are doing this. Uh, so yeah, great clarification. Thanks, Pastor. Looking at paragraph 25.4, not understood or believed simply as they read. We're dealing with how do we read scripture? You know, hermeneutic principles. Right away, we have this idea of, you know, stick with the plain meaning of the text. I'm sure you've mentioned that before. This right here, is this one of the complicated verses that we need to go and, and find a simpler verse to help us understand? Or is this the simple verse, right? Is is the Lord's institution, this is my body, this is my blood. Is that something that needs to be interpreted by other pieces of scripture, other verses? Or is this the thing that is going, going to inform the more complicated verses? And, and that's actually the right way to look at it. What the Lord says in this setting during his giving of his last will and testament in the very obviously straightforward, literal sense. We, you know, we don't have anything in the count that tells us, well, read these words figuratively, read these words uh, poetically, read them like that or this. It's very simple, straightforward stuff. And he says, this is my body. This is my blood. And so as we read in Corinthians, as Paul is now teaching on the Lord's Supper, it's Jesus' words that are going to inform how we understand Paul's words. 
which is going to be important as we understand the differences between the Lutheran teaching, the biblical teaching, and what we're getting with the sacramentarians and these crafty ones at that, as they're trying to take these words and pack into them what's not there. You know, is means is, not represents, not symbolizes, or that sort of thing. So they are understood simply as they read, and the sacramentarians are trying to say, no, they're not. They you need to you need to read them with representation language or metaphor or simile things like that. Again, we have another principle here of how do we read scripture? We need to pay attention to the context. Yeah, and right here in the midst of the Lord instituting his last will and testament, we have a context that tells us he is speaking very straightforward. Solid declaration will talk on this too when it's talking about the the holy supper. It's going to take up this language I often get, when I, when I start teaching this in the parish, in a catechism class or something, I get a new person who doesn't quite understand how we can take this so simply and so straightforward. They'll say, but doesn't Jesus say something to the effect that he is the door? Doesn't it say something like that, Pastor, somewhere in the Gospels? Yes, in John 10, right? I am the door. And I love going there with people as they try to wrap their heads around the Lord's Supper, because right there in, in John 10, we have the evangelist says, that he gives us this figure of speech, that the, the disciples didn't understand this figure of speech. It tells us, in the context of the verse, how we are to read a statement like, I am the door. Well, we also get that same sort of context, the, the identifier for us here with the Lord's Supper, the institution of it, without something telling us it's a figure of speech, and the, the gravity of a situation like giving a last will and testament, this is not a time to be reading metaphors into Christ's language. Before we belabor that any longer, I think I made the point, this is to be read simply, it's to be read with, uh, you know, this is the text that then will that will inform other texts throughout Scripture. Difficult expression, meaning sought in other passages, and that's what it says here as we're rejecting. Scripture does interpret Scripture. We're not saying that Lutherans don't say that. No, not at all. We're saying that this is the verse that will help us understand the more complicated verses, just to make sure, you know, listeners are clear on that. Paragraph 26, Christ's body is not received orally, with the mouth only bread. Uh, this this always sort of reeks of, of Gnosticism to me. And I don't know if we want to always go there, but as I think about this, we have this crafty language. It's, it's teaching us and in, encouraging us to spiritualize what our Lord tells us. Our Lord is giving us his physical body, his real body. And I think we already talked about this with the affirmative uh, statements. It's not a local presence, but it is a real bodily presence, nonetheless, in the supernatural way. But here we have this spiritualization, and we're going to get that all through these the, re the remaining statements that we reject, the negative statements, these teachings, that this, this emphasis of spiritualization, which for our more contemporary audiences out here, in, in American evangelicalism, we're very familiar with the spiritualization of the faith, we hear phrases like, I'm spiritual, not religious, uh, relationship, not religion, uh, things like that. We have this almost built-in worldview where we reject, as modern American Christians, we reject anything that might be fleshly and, and mundane and basic, right? Because it's, it's, it's not spiritual. It's, it's not taking me up into heaven. And that's because we live in a, a very Reformed culture, to be sure. 27... The, the last one you read there in this group, the bread and wine and the Holy Supper are nothing more than tokens by which Christians recognize one another. They are indeed tokens in which we recognize one another, I suppose we could say. The altar is a place where Christians find each other. I, 
when I'm at the altar and I'm kneeling there next to you, I, I do find another Christian there for sure. We make the same confession as the brother w- you know, with us. And this speaks to closed communion and why those who are of the same faith should commune at the altar because it's your confession. But it's not only a place where we find recognition be- between Christians. You know, this the Lord's Supper isn't a, a, a fish symbol on someone's Honda Accord, right? This isn't a, a bumper sticker. We're not dealing with something like that. There's something much more going on at that point. United Confession, of course, but not just that. That's one side of the the, uh, communion coin, but there's the other as well. So I don't know. Do we want to move on, Pastor, to make sure we—I'm trying to be uh, weary of your time. Well, no, you're you're doing a great job, and I love how you're walking us through point by point here and and also showing the, the connection here. Um, so I'm trying not to interrupt you because <laughs> <'cause laughs> well, okay. lo- lots of thoughts come up for me as, of course, sure. you know, are, are, are the nature of when you get two theologians talking together, let alone of anyone course. else. Right. But yeah, uh, yeah you're, you're doing a great job here. And so the, the connecting point here, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, but as you hit really well, uh, I, I like the way you phrased it there that, uh, you know, the spiritualization is what's going to be driving a lot of these things that we we reject and condemn. And as has been highlighted on this show then too, that's one of the reasons that this time where, you know, our, our churches can't gather and things like that, and, and some parts of the country that's starting to lighten up already, to, uh, at least where I'm at here in Illinois, uh, we're probably under this for another month or so. But this is why it's so difficult for us, because we, we actually believe Christ when he says, this is my body, this is my blood. And, and I like how you broke down to, you know, how we understand scripture, how we do use scripture, interpret scripture. But day one, Greek student. Well, maybe not day one, um, but uh, you know, <laughs> first first month or so, Greek student can can easily understand even the Greek that at work there, right? And 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 even in the English, it's quite clear. And I love how you connected that to one of those where in the context, Jesus is the door, and that's one of the ones that the Reformed like to use as well in trying to refute our points is, is, well, Jesus speaks metaphorically all the time. Well, right, but you generally have context going on there to help you understand that that's what's going on. And here, the context is very clear. Jesus is simply saying, this is my body, this is my blood. And so this can't be understood in a spiritual way, which connects us to the next point. Bread and wine are still present, but that is Christ's body and blood, and that's received there. And the the symbols and tokens and how we recognize one another and, and what's going on in this meal and everything, it's very clear that there is a, a real physical presence at work through all of this. You've done a great job. We're going to have to take a break, but uh, please join us right after this for more. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 10 states, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Find this true wisdom in Christ on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on Worldwide KFUO. Sharpen the iron of your faith together with two pastors as they take up the sword of the Spirit to proclaim the gifts of Christ crucified and risen for you. Welcome back to Concord Matters. As we continue talking here with Tyro Bramwell, pastor 
at uh, St. Mark's in Ferndale, California. Real honor to have you on with us. And, and I guess I should have said at the beginning of the show that you're actually an author on a book that talks about some of this. And I meant to, to do that. I had in my notes here, uh, but you, you are the author of the book, Come In, We're Closed. That's right. All right. And that's a really excellent book. One I commend to our listeners, a real easy read. I even have reading issues and I, I was able to read it pretty quickly. It's a good read. Just a, a nice, uh, you know, guy sitting with a retired pastor there and coffee shop having a conversation talking about the issue of closed communion, which of course is, is part of what we're going to be dealing with in the negative statements here. But we're not going to talk about your book. We're going to talk about the Book of Concord. But I did want to recommend that for our listeners uh, to, <laughs> well, uh, to check that book out. So uh, thanks for writing that and thanks for being on. But we're going to go ahead and uh, push forward here with Article 7, the Holy Supper of Christ and the Formula of Concord, the epitome of the Formula of Concord. And we're picking up with paragraph 28, negative statement number 7. The bread and wine are only figures points of comparison and representations of Christ's far absent body and blood. Now, again, this is, we reject and condemn this. We, we do not agree with this <laughs> statement. It's a negative statement. I'm also going to cover the next one. The bread and wine are no more than a memorial seal and pledge. We are assured through them that when faith elevates itself to heaven, it becomes a partaker of Christ's body and blood there. This happens as surely as we eat bread and drink wine in the supper. All right, so why do we reject and condemn these? And it seems connected with the three that we covered right just before the break. Absolutely. You know, right away we have very clear things that, as Lutherans, we talk about pretty regularly, this representation language, this comparison, points of comparison. More importantly, well, not more importantly, but more uh, less talked about is this far absent body. So we, we, we reject the, the representation language. We reject the comparison language. I'll talk about that in a second. But for a moment, let's look at this far absent body language. From, from where we are, we're, this negative statement, what we're rejecting is that we're down here and the Lord has ascended into heaven. Uh, and he, so he's far away from us. He can't possibly be on the altar during the Lord's Supper and also be in, in heaven. So in question comes Christ's omnipresence. And, and we're going to get that as we move through here all of these divine attributes start to sort of be questioned through the, the sacramentarian's teaching, that whether Christ's human nature, his, his physical body, received this, this one, omnipresence, as well as the other divine attributes, you know, omnipotence and omniscience. So <laughs> I love this. There, there's a story of after the, the crypto-Calvinists were sort of outed, after they, they had they'd been doing some deceptive teaching, trying to uh, take over the Lutheran territories there. And after they were outed, there was, you know, as you could imagine, all kinds of celebration, uh, festival days and, and these sorts of things. There was also some memorial coins, which is really sort of ironic as we're talking about these points that we're rejecting as we're dealing with representations and memorial seals and pledges and things. Th there were these memorial coins that were minted. And <laughs> In, in 1574, on one of these coins, there was the elector in his right hand holding the sword and in his left holding this balance, this scale. On the falling side of the scale sits this image of baby Jesus with the word omnipotence inscribed on it. So we have this clear statement that in the incarnation, in the, in the human enfleshment of the Logos, God's word 
we have the divine attribute with the human, right? Together with the omnipotence, we're going to find also omnipresence and omniscience as well. So all by putting that one word there, they're putting all God's attributes. On the other side, condemningly, on the scale that's being lifted is four crypto-Calvinists and Satan sitting there, the devil sitting on that scale. And, and the crypto-Calvinists are almost like tugging at the chains, trying to make it heavier, trying to get their reason and their, their, uh, their crafty language to make the scale kind of balance out. It makes you think of Luther, you know, just how he adamantly held to, this is my body. You know, Zwingli could have all the, all the sort of arguments he wanted. At the end of the day, Luther just said, he said is, guy. He just said is. So is is is, all right? Uh, I just I just love that as we're dealing with these that we have this this picture of Jesus and he's not far absent, uh, you know his his ability to be both in heaven and on the altar and not just on the altar here in Ferndale but also the altar where where you preside, uh, Pastor Smith and where all people are celebrating the meal. The Lord is able to do that and be there, and uh, so we reject this idea that he's far absent and that what was happening at the altar is simply the representation or the, uh, the a point of comparison as if you know, bread is somewhat like flesh and, and wine is somewhat like blood, and it's meant to draw our attention to that comparison. No, no, we reject that. Now, as we look into uh, point eight, paragraph 29, and we start to kind of dig around there a little bit, we understand this memorial language. This is really what we see a lot in our American Christian culture, we really are kind of evangelical Christians in our day and age, hang heavy on this remembrance language. Do this in remembrance of me. That seems to be the focus for the Calvinists as they look at the institution of the Lord's Supper. The Solid Declaration really helps us understand that uh, this, this uh, negative statement with its negative statement on this topic. And it says this, so the assurance and confirmation of our faith happen in the Supper only through the outward signs and not through Christ's true present body and blood offered to us. Again, like you said, this is a negative statement that we reject, right? It's saying that, no, the assurance and confirmation of our faith is in the presence of Christ's body and blood. That's, that's where the assurance is, not in some outward sign, but in the actual thing. You know, signs can speak to, they can kind of wink at or nod toward the assurance of something, but it's the thing. It's the actual thing itself that truly gives assurance and confirmation. No matter what you're talking about, whether you're talking about the, the body and blood of the Lord or, or anything else, a symbol of the of the anything else is not the same as the thing itself. And so we Lutherans, instead of hanging our our, our hats on memorial language, we do we do, do the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him, but also trusting with a simple faith. He says it is his body and blood. It is his body and blood. And so we, we hang heavy there instead of on a memorial meal. And there's where we find our, our true assurance and our true confirmation in, in the word of the one who is actually trustworthy, the one who, who doesn't waver, doesn't falter like, our, like we do. And it's not about what we're seeing as an external sign, but the actual thing itself that we know is the body and blood of the Lord. Why? because he said so. And I think you're picking up here really well on what the next paragraph then is, right? So we'll pick up here with negative, where, where you ended there is just where it starts. So this is uh, negative statement number nine, paragraph 30 of uh, Article 7, the Holy Supper of Christ. 
in the Holy Supper, the assurance and confirmation of our faith concerning salvation happen through the external signs of bread and wine alone. They do not happen through Christ's actually truly present body and blood. I'm going to go ahead and take uh, the next one as well here, uh, negative statement number 10. In the Holy Supper, only the power, effect, and merit of Christ's absent body and blood are distributed. So again, we're getting this absent language, which is just a really disturbing idea to for any Christian to think that, that Christ is somehow absent from the, the world that, that he came to save and redeem, right? Uh, but then, but then you know, these external signs, and I, I don't know, it just I don't know about you, but sometimes this just feels so overwhelmingly and confusing. And of course, these are things we reject and condemn. So to me, a Lutheran, maybe it should be, but go ahead and break these down for us. Absolutely. Yeah. And we see that as you're, you're right to connect 30 and 29, paragraphs 30 with 29. And we see that in the same way, this happens as surely as we eat bread and drink the wine of the supper. And then we have in the Holy Supper, the assurance. So we're dealing with certainty, assurance, and where we get that from. You know, Lutherans go to scripture. And that's, that's kind of what we're, we're arguing for this entire time, whether we're talking with a Roman Catholic or with a Calvinist uh, the, on the Reform side of things. We're going to Scripture, always back to Scripture, always back to Scripture, instead of to what man says or what man is doing, our, our reason, right? As Lutherans, and we're going to see this at the very end, we're constantly saying, you know, our reason is captive to and obedient to Christ and what He says. We recognize we're sinful we're fallen, and we don't see things the way the Lord does. We don't do things the way He does. He's able to do everything perfectly, and so we we subject ourselves to Him and what He says. And therein lies our assurance, where on the uh, sacramentarian side of things, the reform side of things, there's a magisterial use of reason where they're trying to say, well, you know, I just don't see how that could possibly be, and so I'm going to invent this way. I'm going to I'm rationalize how this is happening, and and so I'm going to make it, you know, fit what I want it to fit and be what I want it to be. But as you just kind of said, you know, that confuses things. It muddies the water. It breaks down assurance. It robs us of assurance, and it introduces confusion. We don't want that. 31. Only power, effect, and merit are distributed. Now, this is just confusing to me. Speaking of confusion, you know, 1 Corinthians 11, 20, 29, we always want to go back to Scripture. What do we get there? Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Any teaching that removes the power, the effect, the merit of Christ from the body and blood of Christ, that tries to separate those two, fails to discern the body and the blood in the sacrament. This always makes me think of 1 John 4, and I don't, I don't actually even know if, if historically we Lutherans go to 1 John 4 with this, but this just, the bells start going off in my head. I start remembering the verses in, in 1 John 4, where we're taught how to test the spirits, the teachings in the world, even those who come in the name of Christ, we're, we're taught, do not believe every spirit, John says, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets, prophets have gone out into the world, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So as we start looking at the power, the effect, the merit of Christ's body and blood, it's very dangerous waters to try to separate those two things, or those things from each other, from you know, the actual body and blood, from that which it gives. It only gives it with it. To be in the presence of, of Christ is to 
to receive the effects of being in the presence of Christ. You, you, you can't put a, a barrier or a separation between those. Yeah, I don't know specifically if uh, Lutherans typically go to it for that fleshliness of it, uh, as you bring out there. And I think that's an excellent point to make. I think Luther himself, uh, you've mentioned before the the colloquy, uh, Marburg colloquy between mm-hmm. uh, Zwingli and, and Luther. And, and I think you've even alluded to his words there. But what uh, Luther says to uh, Zwingli is, you are of a different spirit than us, right? And so uh, I think uh-huh. th- that at least connects to First John there. But but overall, there too, interesting that you can't read anything that John writes in the New Testament and not see that there is a fleshly sense to all of this. I mean, John chapter 6, I mean, his words of what Jesus says, you know, those who eat of my body and drink of my blood have eternal life. I mean, I am the bread come down from heaven. I mean, it's a very fleshly presence that John has in mind very clearly in, in all of his writings, and it comes out in his epistles as well. And so I think you're right to take us there, and that's certainly very scriptural, and yet also reveals how we are of a different spirit there. You're of a different interpretation and, and for these Zwingli Calvinists, you know, the, the reform side, everything just is so, uh, I don't know if ethereal is the right word, but it, it's, it's just kind of this absent, apart from me, kind of Jesus Christ is everywhere, but he's nowhere I can actually find him. I somehow have to <laughs> mentally, which is really disturbing to me when going back to how you so, so capably focused us on, on a beautiful word that sets up all of these negative statements. It's the simple faith. Well, if I have a simple mind, you know, as, as Jesus Christ himself says, little children can believe in me, right? If I have a simple mind, how can I possibly climb up into heaven and find Christ in this, this spiritual way? It just doesn't even make sense to me. And so I, I think it robs a lot of consciences as badly as what we, we laid out on the, the spectrum on the other side is the Roman Catholics and all their innovations and what they've got going on. It's robbing Christ of being Christ and giving to us this simple confession of our faith that here is my body, here is my blood given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And that's to be a beautiful comfort for you. And both of these spectrums, I think you're highlighting really well for us, are robbing us of all of that comfort. Sorry to kind of kind of wax on in my own little sermon there for a no, little bit, but you're but absolutely I, I, right. Which the irony of it is that you know the teaching of assurance, right, and that it makes us less certain. Yeah, of course. Let's take a look at the thirty-two. All right, yes, let's push forward. All right, so picking up paragraph thirty-two, negative statement number eleven. Again, these are things that we reject and condemn. Christ's body is so enclosed in heaven that there is no way it can be at once and at one time in many or all places on earth where his holy supper is celebrated. Wow, what a mind bender there. All right, sorry, I'm going to push forward and get uh, 33 here as well. Christ is not promised and could not have caused the essential presence of his body and blood in the holy supper. For the nature and the property of the human nature he received cannot allow this presence or permit it. All right, go ahead and make sense of these if you can. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're definitely linked together. I'm glad you read them together. The Christ's body is so enclosed in heaven. It's, it's, it would seem, you know, Acts 1, 9 to 11, the ascension, it's informing this, right? It seems to inform this idea that Jesus, you know, he, he ascended. We know he ascended into heaven. And so now I guess we're reasoning out if we're following the, the Calvinist Zwinglian teachings here, the crafty sacramentarian teachings, we're reasoning out that he must stay there bodily, you know, trying to use my reason to figure this stuff out. I can't grasp how he could, he could ascend to heaven and, and be physically present, bodily present in, at the altar in the supper. John 20 though, helps us understand this as we, we see in 19 and 
to and 20 verses 19 and 20 that you know, Jesus is capable of doing the incomprehensible that which we cannot comprehend bodily as he enters the the locked room to be with the disciples and he does you know he enters a locked room how, how do you get in there well he, he he's god he's able to do that his body operates a little differently than ours in that regard uh, because of the the two natures united there. So I'm going to yeah, go ahead and pause you there because you're sure. you're hitting on paragraph 34 as well. And I oh. probably should have <laughs> read this. They're all connected. Yeah, no, they are all connected. And I I love where you took us there. You know, we just heard this in the Easter progression, at least in the one-year lectionary that, that I have. Well, I think even the three-year has it too, the Sunday after Easter where yep. Jesus, you know, shows up. And, and of course you get Doubting Thomas in there as well. But paragraph 34 says, God by all his power is not able... And I love this parenthetical remark, which is dreadful to hear, to cause his body to be essentially present in more than one place at one time. That is dreadful to hear. I mean, because that that undoes what we hear the first Sunday after Easter is that Jesus does cause his body to be essentially present there, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I love that parenthetical statement too. It really speaks to, these are not dry, old, boring books. There is life in, in our you know Book of Concord. There's life in these texts and they, they help us understand. Yeah. His, his body's not able to do these things. We're totally subjecting ourselves to God can only operate the way I can operate. God is limited by my understanding, which is a is a dreadful thing to hear. Even though we say he's all powerful, he can't be quite that powerful. It makes me wonder what what do they think of I love that you took us to Easter, the resurrection. You know, human bodies aren't supposed to get up from the dead and yet that's the whole gospel, right? That's that's the point. By all his power, he's not able to cause his body to be essentially present in more than one place at one time. The omnipresence and omnipotence of God is limited to a location and a time. I find it interesting how the language shifts here. I don't know if you've caught this, Pastor, but it shifts from up above, we got Christ's body, Christ, Christ, the Holy Supper, Christ truly present. And then in 13, this uh, paragraph 34, God, God, by all his power, this is a shift and I don't know how intentional that is, but it pops out to me because then when we get to 14, not the all-powerful words of Christ. So we have a little bit of a polemical uh, tone coming at us now. Well, and I think there the connection would be with Article 8, which is a connected controversy going on with this <laughs> yep. this controversy, right, of the very person of Christ himself. So these are connected issues. And so we're going to be picking up a lot of these themes as well. I'm going to push us forward here. Uh, one, probably ah, because okay. of time, you're doing a great job. but Having I a lot of fun. Yeah, I want to push us forward just because there's some more dreadful things to hear coming up here. <laughs> uh, so picking up paragraph 35, negative statement number 14, not the all-powerful words of Christ's testament, but faith produces and makes Christ's body and blood present in the Holy Supper. Well, I'm just going to say here, and I'll let you talk on it here in a second too, but then that makes it a work of mine, right? So then picking up with paragraph 36, negative statement 15, believers must not seek Christ's body and blood in the bread and wine of the Holy Supper. They must raise their eyes from the bread to heaven and there seek Christ's body. Again, that that seems like a connected issue to this. It's up to my faith yep. to find this here. Yeah, and this is what I was uh, referencing at the beginning. This is sort of the sister error that we see on the other side of the aisle from Rome. Point two that we reject, the papistic sacrifice of the Mass, would be the, the other one. Now, here we have it, the other side of things. It's the individual's faith that is producing the work, it, the, that's giving us assurance and doing these sorts of things, which we reject just as much as we reject 
that it's the priest's work. You know, this is putting it on us, on my faith, my ability to believe that it's it's possible. So, and in, in believers must not seek Christ's body in bread and wine. Though the Lord says, this is my body, this teaching is saying, well, but you're not supposed to look here for it. You know, there was this false accusation by the sacramentarians that, that we were bread worshipers, that we adored the bread as the Reformed were taking over the Lutheran territories. That we, they were constantly kind of preaching this. And uh, we you know, actually saw the removal of all kinds of things from the sanctuaries, uh, images, of course, crucifixes, baptismal fonts, altars, wafers were replaced with bread that was broken open to be able to show that it wasn't the body of Christ. This teaching here saying, uh, don't seek the, the body of Christ here, it's just bread. Uh, horrible things that shouldn't have been done. And you know, it, again, we're, we're dealing with this spiritualization it's purely spiritual for them. Look look up to heaven. This is almost laughable for me because it makes me think of the ascension. Here we are, we, we see the apostles while they were they were gazing into heaven as the Lord went and behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? And here we are and we have a teaching that's saying, don't, don't look where the Lord has pointed you to look. Don't look at the bread and wine as to be his body and blood like he said it is. Instead, Start gazing into heaven. Now, look up there and try to find him there. We reverted back to what we shouldn't be doing, right? You're probably going to get to this when you when you finally get to the solid declaration, but this comes into connection here too. It is taught that the elements or the visible species or forms of the consecrated bread and wine must be adored. And this is, again, a negative statement we reject. However, no one, unless he is an Arian heretic, makes it pretty clear, can and will deny that Christ himself, true God and man, is truly and essentially present in the supper. Christ should be adored. Christ should be adored in spirit and truth, in the true use of the sacrament, as he is in all other places, especially where his congregation is assembled. We're not adoring the bread. We're not worshiping bread here. So when we look for the Lord in the bread, we're not adoring the bread. We're adoring the word of the Lord. We're adoring Christ and we're believing what he said. This is where I'll find him. I don't know how it happens. I, I can't even begin to tell you how it happened, but it happens. And how do I know that? Because the Lord said so. I like how you took us to the ascension. That, that one hadn't jumped to my mind. That, that was a good one. But the one that kind of jumps out for me is in Luke 24 with the disciples, the day Jesus was raised from the dead, right? On, on the road to Emmaus. And you have the disciples on the, the road to Emmaus there. They have Jesus walk right up to them. They don't recognize him, right? And he, he begins expounding the scriptures to them. And they still don't see it. They still don't recognize him. But then Luke reports for us that when he took the bread, and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were open, Luke says, and they recognized him. See, I think this is, yeah. we were talking earlier about scripture interpreting scripture. I think this is how we understand the word remembrance going on. Uh, we, we, we should have no problem with the word is, as you well laid out for us. But we understand remembrance, which has a much more forceful and deep meaning in the Greek than we have in our English. But we understand this really well with that Emmaus text, where they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. There's Jesus. This is exactly what he told us was going to go on, right? There's Holy Communion. Absolutely. And there we go. We're supposed to we're supposed to look for him there. That's That's where he said he would be. That's where the certainty is. Do these things in remembrance of me, and as often as you do them, I'm with you. Yeah, that's a beautiful text. You know, the spiritualization of this, 
And this is the danger. I, and you see it in, in uh, current contemporary situations. On the reform side of things, American evangelicalism it comes up with all kinds of wonky and weird things that end up happening because it unroots it. It, it kind of pulls up the anchor, the anchor where the Lord has planted his truths. And it says, you know, just kind of figure it out yourself, kind of lift your eyes to heaven and, and kind of try to search me out. And so we see weird things. I, I've watched uh, a, a Baptist baptism where the pastor never spoke the Trinitarian formula, never actually baptized the person in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, just kind of went through a similar motion. I've heard of uh, pastors who celebrate the Lord's Supper with youth groups and and things, and, and there's no bread available. So they end up doing, the, the worst one I heard about was Cheetos. Um, using Cheetos, because if it's not, if his Christ's body is not in the bread where he said, and we're not doing it according to his instruction, and we're just lifting our eyes to heaven, well, yeah, you can just make anything you want be the vessel you need to get to where you're trying to go. But as we mentioned, and you mentioned very clearly, it puts it all on the person, the faith of the person. And we all know how well we believe we're of little faith, and we struggle, and our hearts are sinful and, and lost. We need to anchor this somewhere besides ourselves so we can get away from Cheeto communion and actually have the Lord's body and blood right where he said it would be. Our anchor is in Christ. That is a great uh, way to uh, wrap this up. Unfortunately, we have more negative statements to get to. We'll get to that, but we want to thank Pastor Tyrell Bramwell for joining us for Concord Matters today and talking us through these negative statements. There's a lot of them, and they're crazy and confusing, but we thank him for talking us through with regard to the teaching on the Holy Supper of Christ. If you have a question or comment that you would like to leave for us to address the next time we convene for Concord, picking up the rest of these negative statements, you can leave us a message by phone 314-996-1542, email kfeo at kfeo.org, on social media at KFEO Radio. Thank you, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.